Section 8 of Basil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Basil by Wilkie Collins. Section 8, being Part 1, Chapter 8. My manuscript lay before me, set in order by Clara's careful hand. I slowly turned over the leaves, one by one but my eye only fell mechanically on the writing. Yet one day since, and how much ambition, how much hope, how many of my heart's dearest sensations and my mind's highest thoughts dwelt in those poor paper leaves, in those little crab marks of pen and ink. Now I could only look on them indifferently, almost as a stranger would have looked. The days of calm study, of steady toil of thought, seemed departed for ever. Stirring ideas, store of knowledge patiently heaped up, visions of better sights than this world can show, falling freshly and sunnily over the pages of my first book. All these were past and gone, withered up by the hot breath of the senses, doomed by a paltry fate, whose germ was the accident of an idle day. I hastily put the manuscript aside. My unexpected interview with Clara had calmed the turbulent sensations of the evening, but the fatal influence of the dark beauty remained with me still. How could I write? I sat down at the open window. It was at the back of the house, and looked out on a strip of garden, London garden, a close-shut dungeon for nature where stunted trees and drooping flowers seemed visibly pining for the fresh air and sunlight of the country in their sooty atmosphere, amid their prison of high brick walls. But the place gave room for the air to blow in it, and distanced the tumult of the busy streets. The moon was up, shined round tenderly by a little border-walk of pale yellow light. Elsewhere the awful void of night was starless, the dark luster of space shone without a cloud. A presentiment arose within me, that in this still and solitary hour would occur my decisive, my final struggle with myself. I felt that my heart's life or death was set on the hazard of the night. This new love that was in me, this giant sensation of a day's growth, was first love. Hitherto I had been whole heart. I had known nothing of the passion which is the absorbing passion of humanity. No woman had ever before stood between me and my ambitions, my occupations, my amusements. No woman had ever before inspired me with the sensations which I now felt. In trying to realize my position, there was one question to consider. Was I still strong enough to resist the temptation which accident had thrown in my way? I had this one incentive to resistance, the conviction that if I succumbed, as far as my family prospects were concerned, I should be a ruined man. I knew my father's character well. I knew how far his affections and his sympathies might prevail over his prejudices, even over his principles, in some peculiar cases, and this very knowledge convinced me that the consequences of a degrading marriage contracted by his son, degrading in regard to rank, would be terrible, fatal to one, perhaps to both. Every other irregularity, every other offence even, he might sooner or later forgive. This irregularity, this offence, never. Never there was heart broke in the struggle. I was sure of it, as I was of my own existence at that moment. I loved her. All that I felt, all that I knew was summed up in those few words. 
deteriorating as my passion was, in its effect on the exercise of my mental powers, and on my candour and sense of duty in my intercourse with home, it was a pure feeling towards her. This is truth. If I lay on my deathbed at the present moment, and knew that at the judgment day I should be tried by the truth or falsehood of the lines just written, I could say with my last breath, So be it. Let them remain. But what mattered my love for her? However worthy of it she might be, I had misplaced it, because chance, the same chance which might have given her station and family, had placed her in a rank of life far, too far, below mine. As the daughter of a gentleman, my father's welcome, my father's affection, would have been bestowed on her, when I took her home as my wife. As the daughter of a tradesman, my father's anger, my father's misery, my own ruin, perhaps besides, would be the fatal dower that a marriage would confer on her. What made all this difference? A social prejudice. Yes, but a prejudice which had been a principle, nay more, a religion, in our house since my birth, and for centuries before it. How strange that foresight of love which precipitates the future into the present! Here was I thinking of her as my wife, before perhaps she had a suspicion of the passion with which she had inspired me, vexing my heart, wearying my thoughts, before I had even spoken to her, as if the perilous discovery of our marriage were already at hand. I have thought since how unnatural I should have considered this, if I had read it in a book. How could I best crush the desire to see her, to speak to her, on the morrow? Should I leave London, leave England, fly from the temptation, no matter where, or at what sacrifice? Or should I take refuge in my books, the calm, changeless old friends of my earliest fireside hours? Had I resolution enough to wear my heart out by hard, serious, slaving study? If I left London on the morrow, could I feel secure in my own conscience that I should not return the day after? While throughout the hours of the night I was thus vainly striving to hold calm counsel with myself, the base thought never occurred to me which might have occurred to some other men in my position. Why marry the girl because I love her? Why, with my money, my station, my opportunities, obstinately connect love and marriage as one idea? and make a dilemma and a danger where neither need exist. Had such a thought as this, in the faintest, the most shadowy form, crossed my mind, I should have shrunk from it, have shrunk from myself, with horror. Whatever fresh degradations may be yet in store for me, this one consoling and sanctifying remembrance must still be mine. My love for Margaret Sherwin was worthy to be offered to the purest and perfectest woman that ever God created. The night advanced, the noises faintly reaching me from the streets sank and ceased. My lamp flickered and went out. I heard the carriage return with Clara from the ball. The first cold clouds of day rose and hid the waning orb of the moon. The air was cooled with its morning freshness. The earth was purified with its morning dew and still I sat by my open window, striving with my burning love-thoughts of Margaret, striving to think collectedly and usefully, abandoned to a struggle ever renewing, yet never changing, and always, hour after hour, a struggle in vain. At last I began to think less and less distinctly. 
A few moments more, and I sank into a restless, feverish slumber. Then began another and a more perilous ordeal for me, the ordeal of dreams. Thoughts and sensations, which had been more and more weakly restrained with each succeeding hour of wakefulness, now rioted upon me in perfect liberation from all control. This is what I dreamed. I stood on a wide plain. On one side it was bounded by thick woods whose dark secret depths looked unfathomable to the eye. On the other, by hills, ever rising higher and higher yet, until they were lost in bright, beautifully white clouds, gleaming in refulgent sunlight. On the side above the woods the sky was dark and vaporous. It seemed as if some thick exhalation had arisen from beneath the trees, and overspread the clear firmament throughout this portion of the scene. As I still stood on the plain and looked around, I saw a woman coming towards me from the wood. Her stature was tall. Her black hair flowed about her unconfined. Her robe was of the dun hue of the vapour and mist which hung above the trees, and fell to her feet in dark, thick folds. She came on towards me swiftly and softly, passing over the ground like cloud-shadows over the ripe cornfield or the calm water. I looked to the other side, towards the hills, and there was another woman descending from their bright summits, and her robe was white and pure and glistening. Her face was illumined with a light, like the light of the harvest moon, and her footsteps, as she descended the hills, left a long track of brightness that sparkled far behind her like the track of the stars when the winter night is clear and cold. She came to the place where the hills and the plain were joined together. Then she stopped, and I knew that she was watching me from afar off. Meanwhile the woman from the dark woods still approached, never pausing on her path like the woman from the fair hills. And now I could see her face plainly. Her eyes were lustrous and fascinating as the eyes of a serpent, large, dark, and soft as the eyes of the wild doe. Her lips were parted with a languid smile, and she drew back the long hair which lay over her cheeks, her neck, her bosom, while I was gazing on her. Then I felt as if a light was shining on me from the other side. I turned to look, and there was the woman from the hills beckoning me away to ascend with her towards the bright clouds above. Her arm as she held it forth shone fair, even against the fair hills, and from her outstretched hand came long thin rays of trembling light which penetrated to where I stood, cooling and calming wherever they touched me. But the woman from the wood still came nearer and nearer until I could feel her hot breath on my face. Her eyes looked into mine and fascinated them as she held out her arms to embrace me. I touched her hand and in an instant the touch ran through me like fire from head to foot. Then still looking intently on me with her wild bright eyes she clasped her supple arms round my neck and drew me a few paces away with her towards the wood. I felt the rays of light that had touched me from the beckoning hand depart, and yet once more I looked towards the woman from the hills. She was ascending again towards the bright clouds, and ever and anon she stopped and turned round, wringing her hands and letting her head droop, as if in bitter grief. The last time I saw her look towards me she was near the clouds. She covered her face with her robe, and knelt down where she stood. After this I discerned no more of her. 
for now the woman from the woods clasped me more closely than before, pressing her warm lips on mine, and it was as if her long hair fell round us both, spreading over my eyes like a veil to hide from them the fair hilltops, and the woman who was walking onward to the bright clouds above. I was drawn along in the arms of the dark woman, with my blood burning, and my breath failing me, until we entered the secret recesses that lay amid the unfathomable depths of the trees. There she encircled me in the folds of her dusky robe, and laid her cheek close to mine, and murmured mysterious music in my ear, amid the midnight silence and darkness of all around us. And I had no thought of returning to the plain again, for I had forgotten the woman from the fair hills, and had given myself up, heart and soul and body, to the woman from the dark woods. Here the dream ended, and I awoke. It was broad daylight, the sun shone brilliantly, the sky was cloudless. I looked at my watch, it had stopped. Shortly afterwards I heard the hall clock strike six. My dream was vividly impressed on my memory especially the latter part of it. Was it a warning of coming events, foreshadowed in the wild visions of sleep? But to what purpose could this dream, or indeed any dream, tend? Why had it remained incomplete, failing to show me the visionary consequences of my visionary actions? What superstition to ask! What a waste of attention to bestow it on such a trifle as a dream! Still, this trifle had produced one abiding result. I knew it not then, but I know it now. As I looked out on the reviving, reassuring sunlight, it was easy enough for me to dismiss, as ridiculous from my mind, or rather for my conscience, the tendency to see in the two shadowy forms of my dream the types of two real living beings, whose names almost trembled into utterance on my lips. But I could not also dismiss from my heart the love-images which that dream had set up there for the worship of the senses. Those results of the night still remained within me, growing and strengthening with every minute. If I had been told beforehand how the mere sight of the morning would reanimate and embolden me, I should have scouted the prediction as too outrageous for consideration, yet so it was. The moody and boding reflections, the fear and struggle of the hours of darkness, were gone with the daylight. The love-thoughts of Margaret alone remained, and now remained unquestioned and unopposed, were my convictions of a few hours since like the night-mists that fade before the returning sunshine. I knew not, but I was young, and each new morning is as much the new life of youth as the new life of nature. So I left my study and went out. Consequences might come how they would, and when they would, I thought of them no more. It seemed as if I had cast off every melancholy thought in leaving my room, as if my heart had sprung up more elastic than ever, after the burden that had been laid on it during the night. Enjoyment for the present, hope for the future, and chance and fortune to trust in to the very last. This was my creed as I walked into the street, determined to see Margaret again, and to tell her of my love before the day was out. In the exhilaration of the fresh air and gay sunshine, I turned my steps towards Hollyoake Square, almost as light-hearted as a boy let loose from school, joyously repeating Shakespeare's lines as I went, Hope is a lover's staff, walk hence with that, and manage it against despairing thoughts. 
End of section 8. Recording by ALW POE on January 15, 2011. ALWPOE.com.